Today, our topic on the second Sunday of Advent is love, particularly uh, the love of God. And I'm going to uh, base my remarks this morning on um, a verse, a couple of verses from one of the ancient prophets, Zephaniah. And I'd like to just start off by reading this verse, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. It's a verse that many of you may know. I actually first came in contact with this verse in a conscious way. I'm sure I'd heard it before. But very early in our years in Nigeria, we had living about six-hour drive from us over one single dirt road, a Baptist missionary couple, Ken and June Goodman. They were probably at that time 60 years old, so quite a bit older than us. And so we would go up, uh, they lived in a little higher altitude, and the weather was better, a little cooler, and we would go up and visit with them. And we were up there, I think we'd only been there like a couple of months, and we were visiting with them. I think they had some kind of a church conference, if I don't remember, if I remember correctly. And uh, I don't know if Ken himself had made up the song or if it was an already known song, but they sang this verse, uh, it was just part of their of the of the music that they sang and i was really struck by uh by this text for some reason it had never really come into my head before so whenever i read this text i think back on that time which is now uh, quite a few years ago and ken and june goodman up there in that uh, pastor's retreat zephaniah three seventeen. thanks christopher the lord your god is in your midst a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And I must comment here that uh, the the translation here is a little bit difficult. I'm no Hebrew expert. I, I read this from the experts. Another way to translate that phrase, he will quiet you by his love, is he will rest in his love. It's a little bit of a different, different feeling. I'm not telling you which way to go. Those, if you... Google it, you'll find all that. In fact, the King James has, he will rest in his love. So it's your choice depending on how you feel that day or how the Spirit leads you that day, I guess. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So this word love is a complex word in any culture. If you've ever learned another language, Uh, You may find out that love has just a variety of meanings, oftentimes different words. If you know something about the New Testament, you realize that in the New Testament, the word that we translate love has three different Greek words that are used to translate, that, that are translated into love. In Hebrew, there are really two main words. One is a word chesed. Uh, which really has the idea of faithfulness. Sometimes you'll see it in the Old Testament as God's faithful love or God's faithfulness. That's the one word. The other word is this word ahava or ahava. I'm not sure where the accent is supposed to be placed. And it's um, really pretty interesting to uh, try to find out the differences between these two words and to dig deeper into the meaning of the word love as it's used here in this chapter. And as usual, the Bible Project has a short little video that talks specifically about this word, explains it a lot better than I can. So I'll let you listen to this video about this word, um, Ahava, the word love that's used here in Zephaniah 3. 
For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the third key word in this prayer, how Israel is called to love their God. But what does that mean? Love is a very common word in most languages, as it is in ancient Hebrew. It's pronounced ahava. It most basically refers to the kind of affection or care that one person shows another. It sometimes describes physical affection, like the king of Persia's love for Queen Esther. But there are other Hebrew words that more specifically refer to physical desire or sex. Ahava is more broad. So Abraham had Ahava for his son Isaac, that's parental love. Jonathan showed Ahava for his friend David, that would be brotherly love. In fact, a whole group of people can have Ahava for their leader, like when the Israelites showed love for their king David. Ahava can even describe loyalty between political allies, like Hiram, the king of Tyre, loved David. They had good relations, and so Hiram wanted to help David's son Solomon build the temple. These are all different kinds of affection, described with the one word, Ahava. Now, all of this is helpful for understanding God's Ahava in the Old Testament. So, in Deuteronomy, Moses told the Israelites, God showed affection for you. He chose you because of his Ahava for you. So, God doesn't love because the Israelites earned it or deserve it. It simply originates from God's own character. He loves because he loves. This is why Jeremiah can say that God's love is everlasting. It has no end because it has no beginning. God's love just is an eternal fact of the universe. And God's love is not a duty. It's a genuine feeling and affection that God experiences. This is why the prophet Hosea compares God's love for his people to a husband's ahava for his wife or to a parent showing ahava for their child. It's one of the strongest things that God feels. But that doesn't mean that God's love is just a feeling. God's love is also in action. It's something God chooses to do. Like when Moses says, because of God's ahava for your ancestors, he brought you out of Egypt with great power. God's love isn't just a sentiment, it is something God does. And so, in the Shema, Israel is called to respond to God's Ahava by showing Ahava in return. And just like God's love, human love is to show itself through actions. Like in Deuteronomy 10, What does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him and serve him and to keep his commands? All of these actions are centered around love. If I'm not doing them, I don't actually love God, I just say I do. Which leads to one last thing. In the Old Testament, I show my love for God by how I treat the people around me. In Deuteronomy, we read that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he shows ahava for the immigrants among you, giving them food and clothing. And so you also show ahava for the immigrant. So the people are to imitate God's ahava by showing ahava for others. This is the idea underneath the famous line, you shall ahava your neighbor as yourself. And so at the end of the day, all of this is rooted in God's own eternal ahava. Like we read in the New Testament letter of 1 John, we love because God first loved us. And that's the Hebrew word ahava. And you almost get this like warm, fuzzy feeling. There's God in heaven exalting over me, uh, rejoicing 
loving in this whole rich way that we just heard about. He loves me, delights over me, he'll save me. You can almost get sentimental about it and very individualistic about it until you look at the context of the prophecy of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a prophecy with three chapters, and the part we're reading is right at the end. If you go back to chapter 1, you get a little different picture, a little different context. I'm not going to read through the whole uh, prophecy, but I'm going to just um, read with you the first four verses of Zephaniah 1 because they give the picture pretty clearly. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Here's the word of the Lord that came. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So this verse 317 about God exalting over me and rejoicing over me is embedded in this context of judgment. It's pretty strong language. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, man and beast. I will cut off mankind. I will stretch out my hand against the nations, but also against my beloved people, Judah. And why does God do that? Well, again, I can't read through all the verses. I just don't have time this morning. But In the whole book of Zephaniah, he outlines a couple of things that the people were doing. Number one, they were ignoring God, not paying attention to him in their lives. They were filling their houses with violence and with fraud. They were, the nations were taunting God's people. There are those who were saying, I am secure. I don't need anyone else. There are those who were oppressing. The whole city of Jerusalem was a place of oppression for those who were marginalized. There were those who did not accept correction, did not trust in the Lord, who did not um, draw draw near to God. And it's a, it's a theme that runs through the Old Testament. Then God's judgment happens. Or as the Bible sometimes put it, God's righteous anger. And it's in that context that these that this 317, this this kind of a sentimental feel-good verse is embedded. And how do those two go together? Well, again, we're we don't have a lot of time this morning, but let me just make a comment, a couple of comments about how I understand this whole concept of God's wrath or God's anger. This may raise some questions in your mind. Feel free to speak with me at any time. But first of all, God's wrath rises up in him when he sees what we people do to other people or to the creation that he made. The people that God loves, the creation that God loves, the goodness that he has poured out upon us. And when we turn that around, 
and turn that into violence and fraud and oppression. When we have no heart for the other person, when we have no heart for the creation that he has made, that evokes in God a feeling of deep sorrow and, and deep anger. The way I always think of it is uh, when, a, when a partner in a marriage has been betrayed by the other partner, the anger, the jealousy, those feelings that you have, which are perfectly justified, That's what the Bible is speaking of when it speaks about God's wrath. And then the Bible often talks about God who actually extends his arm and and does things and punishes, but almost as much. The Bible talks about God withdrawing himself, withdrawing his hand and saying, if this is the way you want to live, keep it up and see what happens. If you persist in breaking relationships, you will end up lonely and alone. If you persist against if you persist in perpetrating injustice against the people in our society, those who are marginalized, disaster will overtake you. It's an automatic thing that happens. It's a consequence. If we persist in burning our forests and pouring fossil fuel emissions into the air, bad things will happen. So, and if, if, you, if, you read, if you read the passages that talk about God's wrath and punishment, this theme is al- almost always in there that God's withdrawing himself. It's not that he's stretching out his arm and picking up people and breaking them. Those images are also in Scripture. But almost as much as it's God saying, if you want to live this way, go ahead. See what happens. But God's anger, and I'm... convinced of this. God's anger, God's wrath, is always restorative. It's not retributive. He's not punishing us just to punish us. He's not letting things happen just to let things happen so he can wipe his hands of us. His anger, his wrath, his actions, his non-actions are all designed to restore and to heal and to bring back. And his anger is never the last word. I can almost guarantee you for 100%, it won't be maybe quite 100%, but almost. Whenever you read about God's wrath in the scriptures, it is followed usually immediately, oftentimes very quickly, by his restoration. His wrath never has the last word. It is always restorative. It always has the design to bring us back into a full experience of his love. And that's what you see in Zephaniah. We're going to read the text now, Zephaniah 3, verses 12 to 20. But that famous word that you find throughout all the scriptures, this is the way it is, people. You've made a mess of it. 
things aren't going well. You're in exile, or you're going to be in exile in the case of Zephaniah. This is what's going to happen, and it's going to look really bad and really dark. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Instead of ignoring me, they're going to find their refuge in my name. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do what? No injustice. They will speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Out of the darkness, out of the exile, out of the punishment, comes this image. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Hear that? He has taken away the judgments against you. Chapters 1 and 2 and half of 3 are full of judgment, and now God says that's all gone. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And now you see the context of this verse. It's deeply rooted in this, in this sin and in this brokenness and in this destruction that follows, and then in this restoration to new life. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame, and I will gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Now the darkness of exile is going to come this restoration. It's going to come this joy where God's space, as we've talked about before, meets man's space. And things start to become what they were intended to be. And of course, this didn't really happen for Israel. There was a small group of people that came back, and Jerusalem was rebuilt, and the temple was rebuilt, but not in the old glory. And as soon as the people, while the people were back in the land, they were still oppressed by the Persians, and then they were oppressed by the Greeks, and then they were oppressed by the Romans. And all the way through these four to five hundred years, even though they were back in the land, they felt that they were still in exile. And they were longing for this Messiah to come, and the, the air was 
the air was 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 full of full of tension. God had promised this. But look what we're experiencing. There's the Romans and there are the crosses. And everything still seems to be broken. And then Jesus came. It's God with us. As John says, the light of the world. The word God became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. And Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another just as I have loved you. Just as Zechariah, Zephaniah 3.17, God exalts over you with rejoicing. He will quiet you with his love. Just as you receive this love of God in the darkness of whatever exile you're in, Jesus says, receive my love, open yourself up to my love, and then pass it on to the world around you. And I'd like to conclude with a video. It's in two parts. The first part is the trailer for a film that just came out called Emancipation. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it. It's in the theaters, I understand, but it's also on Apple TV+. The star of the film is Will Smith. The film is inspired by a photo that was taken, or photos that were taken in 1863 of what they call Whipped Peter, a slave who had been beaten into a coma and at one point came in contact with the Union Army and pictures were taken of his back. If you Google Whipped Peter, you'll find the pictures right away. And this film is, I think, partly based on a true story, but it's, you'll, you'll, you'll see the story as it, as it happens. Um, so there's Peter, this slave, and right at the end of the trailer, you'll see a picture of, the, of also the back. And then it's, it goes into an interview with Will Smith and uh, Trevor Noah of uh, The Daily Show. And, it, and, and Will Smith talks about what happened to him as he was making this, um, this film. And in case you don't know, I just want to mention that Trevor Noah uh, is a South African native, biracial. His father was Swiss. His mother was uh, black South African. So he he was born in the 90s, grew up in the 90s. His own life is rooted in this apartheid, this brokenness of the racism of South Africa. That's where Trevor Noah is coming from. So watch both of these. See the darkness. See the see the what happens when when God withdraws his hand and says, go ahead and do what you're going to do, and then see what happens when love breaks in and makes a real difference. Give thanks to God. The Lord is with us. What can a mere man do to me? I will come back to you! Walk the earth because I let you. I'm your God now. Slaves are free. We must get to Baton Rouge. 
through this one. Nagel's army is dead. There are many ways to die in a swamp. Stop believing that. Peace persisted. Running, hiding, surviving. Um, what's really what's really interesting about it is it, it centers on faith, you know, and the power of faith, you know, to be able to endure anything, mm-hmm. you know. And th- th- this character is just what what he had to endure and what he had to survive. Um, only God could you know make a man when you look at those marks on his back you know only god could make that possible you know and there there he talks about a period in in doing the research he talks about he was whipped into a coma and he was in a coma for three months and he said that he met god while he was in the coma and when he came out he believed in a way that he had never believed wow. before. And I learned the difference between faith and revelation, right? right? So faith is one thing when you have to, you know, you have to have faith. I'm not crying to my eyes. You know, I just got tired. <laughs> I got airplane eyes. I got airplane yeah, eyes. Plane I bet, yeah, I got airplane eyes, you know, but you know, the, the difference between faith uh-huh. and revelation, uh-huh. right? That, that he walked in the world um, with a knowledge of the divine, with a knowledge of God that was just something I desperately wanted to understand and explore. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you watch the film, you wonder, you know, it's one of those movies where you watch it and you go, this is harrowing, this is gripping, this is, it's, it's wild, it yeah. seems unbelievable. Yeah. And then you see the yeah. images of the real person and you, you, your mind cannot comprehend that it was possible for this to happen to a human being and that yeah. they actually exist. It, it, it's a story that, you know, that, that goes beyond everything. And, mm-hmm. and I'd love to know, like, in, in the telling of the story, you know, beyond faith, yeah. beyond revelation, what is the biggest thing you took away from it? Because it's interesting, you know, I, I get what your daughter was saying, do we need another slave yeah. movie? Yeah. And I understand what you're saying about it being mm-hmm. a freedom movie. 
but I feel like each story has a different yeah, lesson. Yes. You know, because it's, it's yeah. a movement, it's a revolution, it's a, it's a quest for freedom. What, what do you think was the biggest lesson you took away from this story? You know, I, I think that, you know, as an actor, anytime you go into these characters and you, you, uh, you go these deep, this deep into these roles, it, it changes something about you. You understand something mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. you didn't understand um, before. And I, I guess the, 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 the major thing that came through for me with, with Peter is the, the power of the direction of love, right? So this is, he's trying to get back to his family. Mm -hmm. And that, that comprehension of love and how love actually is a superpower. You know, when you can fill your heart with that kind of love, it, it's a propulsion yeah. that is unlike any other thing. It's stronger than fear, it's stronger than hate, you know, it's, it's stronger than tired, you know. It's like when you can really latch into and fill your heart with love in a way, it, it really is shield and armor, unlike anything that exists. That's beautiful. Nowhere is the power of God's love made more visible than in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the God who emptied himself out of love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus made himself a servant for us. Jesus hung on the cross and took all that evil and brokenness of the world upon himself. And from the cross he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And this power is the power that can change each one of us, us as a community, us as a society, us as a world and it's slow and it doesn't seem to be working a lot of the time and it's a struggle and we're afraid and we're worried and we're sinful we just can't connect to it sometimes that's why once a month we come to this table and we acknowledge again that it's that love. We say that we need it and that our world needs it. So we come and we eat and we drink as a little token, as a way of saying, I believe it, but help me when I don't believe it and help me to go into my world whether that's school or work or retirement, at home, in the supermarket, on social media, wherever it is, it's this love that's going to change the world and nothing else.